Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. And I would like to take a moment to thank two Cato Gold sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. Thank you to NAG Industries and Aardvark Tactical. NAG Industries is a premier provider for a variety of government sales products like Vortex Optics, Garmin, Streamlight, and many other brands. From breaching tools and training to the latest in pickleball gear, there's a good chance NAG Industry carries it. Check them out at nagindustries.com. I would also like to thank Aardvark Tactical, who's been a steadfast supporter for many years. While Aardvark is famous for their signature Project 7 scalable plate carrier system, Sejin Robot, Low-Key Drone, and Kinetic Breaching Tool, they also offer customized integrated solutions to meet a wide variety of supply needs, such as complete crowd control kits, IED detection, less lethal, and many others. To learn more, check out aardvarktactical.com. Work-life balance is something we all struggle with in our line of work, and especially with the people who listen to this podcast. For those of you who enjoy getting away by spending some time on the lake, casting a line, our podcast sponsor is for you. Cope's Tackle and Rod Shop has been in business since 2015 and carries all of your fishing needs. They are veteran-owned and are proud supporters of Cato and our listeners of the Cato Podcast. Check out their website at tackleandrod.com, enter discount code Cato at checkout, and get 10% off your purchase and get free shipping on anything over $75. Cato is a nonprofit organization that exists to serve law enforcement so they can train their departments and make their communities safer. One of the ways we do this is through support from businesses like Cope's Tackle and Rod. So consider supporting businesses that support us. All right. So, uh, Dustin, thank you for joining Kenny and I. We are down teaching in San Diego, and you uh, work nearby. So we hijack you for your evening because uh, you didn't have a busy enough day and uh, asked you to join us. We've run into you several times because you're a busy guy going up and down the state doing stuff. And uh, not very long ago, you were our post auditor for our SWAT team leader class. And I appreciate your feedback on that. I don't know if people actually thank you or not, um, because it's kind of thankless, but I appreciate that. You know, Kenny gives me feedback, but it's like, you're so good at this. I want to be like you. That's not not what I give (laughs) at all. So it's nice to have, you know, actionable stuff besides do better. You know, so so I appreciate that. So we asked you to come talk to us a little bit about... uh, you really have an expertise in training and uh, a little bit about your background and how you got got into that. And uh, so if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit about your 27 plus years of experience and how you ended up kind of having a passion for training? You bet. Yeah. Thank you. And good evening. And thank you for having me. And by the way, it was great meeting you guys at that SWAT course. And honestly, you did a great job. Thank you. And uh, it's always good to have feedback. One thing that I've found that um, as you ascend the ranks in law enforcement is you don't get a lot of feedback. And in order to get better, you need that. And so that's usually the first thing that I tell people when I'm auditing a class is we're here to help you. We're here to make you better. So, um, and being an ARC, you grow thick skin pretty quick. Yeah. And so it's not as hard for me and I, I, I crave feedback. Yeah. So this is my 27th year working in law enforcement. Um, currently, I'm a, a captain at a small Southern California police department. I'm actually from Northern California, though, um, where, where you're from, Marcus, and that kind of in that neck of the woods, born there, grew up there. And my first job was at a small police agency in the foothills of Northern California, a little town called Angels Camp. Ah, yeah. we know Angels Do Camp you? real well. It's yep. a micro agency, as you yeah. call it. When I was there, there was a chief, a sergeant, and four officers. And, uh, you know, I, I spent seven years there and I learned a lot about working by myself. I think there was a handful of deputies, maybe two CHP officers and, and me in the entire county. You learn real quick about officer safety, pulling people out of cars, searching people, um, depending on yourself, paying attention to your environment and those kind of things. And, uh, you know, I spent some time there and I, I felt like I hit a ceiling and so I wanted to go back home to where I'm from. Uh, I grew up in Stockton, and it's an infamous town for a number of reasons. But working a couple weeks in Stockton, you'll get exposure to pretty pretty much anything that the world can throw at you. Yeah, it's a busy place. And yeah, so I spent the next 20 years at, at the sheriff's office in San Joaquin. I started as deputy, went up to captain before I lateraled out. Uh, eight of those years, I spent working narcotics at the narcotics task force, going from the street to an undercover position 
that's kind of a culture shift chasing cartels and and uh dtas as we call them up and down the west coast from tijuana to to washington and back lived out of my car for most of it yeah ate at a mcdonald's gas stations and uh i'll tell you that had an impact on health uh you know so but again working narcs in stockton uh taught me a lot about about the trade and the industry promoted out of narcs to uh, a sergeant which is not something that you do all the time it's kind of, you kind of re- get removed from the street and the day-to-day work of patrol and so uh promoted out of there got got into uh, black and white again which i love doing um patrol is just my favorite assignment i stayed in patrol from sergeant all the way up to captain until i left i was a captain of field forces responsible for uh, about 150 deputies um the comm center SWAT, EOD, HNT, drones, uh, canine, and all the fun stuff. And uh, here I am now. Part of my journey at San Joaquin was becoming an instructor with POST. Your listeners might know about the AICC program, which is the Academy Instructor Certification course. That gets you into uh, teaching in academies. And so I started teaching in academies there. And while I was at the AICC program, I learned a lot about adult learning theory how people come to understand things. I would go to class and then I'd go back to work and I'd see that we aren't doing what we are trained to do. And I became very curious about the reasons why that happens. And, uh, you know, I, I just kind of kept going to these post courses uh, all the way up to master instructor. For those of you that don't know what master instructor are, is, it's, a, it's about equivalent. It was actually harder than my master's degree, to be quite honest with you. My final product, I'll show it to you same day, Marcus, is probably 350 pages of content. Wow. And you do a significant amount of research. You do uh, a training needs assessment. Um, you interview people. You hold uh, some panels. And, and you do a lot of research to come up with a course. Um, but in that process, you learn about people. You learn about cops. You learn about how they learn how to teach them some of the best practices in doing that. Um, to rewind a little bit, Post actually, they had a budget crunch a few years back and they hit the pause button on the master instructor program, but I didn't want to lose my momentum with, with training. So I went and got a master's degree in education, which is something that's not typical for cops. And in, in a graduate course, being the only cop there and they're all teachers and principals and, and, and the like, uh, I had a lot to learn. I had to I had to catch up real quick on some of these things. But uh, in that in that context, I was able to really understand adult learning theory, and from that, I'm able to take it and and develop courses, um, assess like you guys are familiar with, assess um, the performance of other instructors, and uh, all that. And so since then, I've devoted myself um, outside of my regular professional work to improving the profession through uh, training, through policy development. Um, currently, I'm working on a PhD in communications. If I can stay on track, I'll have that done in, a, I don't know, a year and a half, maybe two years. So we'll see. But that's that's kind of the short story about how I ended up, um, you know, training and kind of in that circuit. That's a, a lot of work, my friend. So when I ask you about free time, you're like, oh, it's a foreign concept. Wellness is something that you have to intentionally do. And I'm a pretty dull boy because I'm doing a lot of, a lot of reading, reading some boring things. Um, I find them intriguing because I finding connections to what, what academia is finding out with the rest of the population and finding ways to extract that and apply it to our profession. That that's pretty exciting to me. If I could, if I could help, you know, just a few people get better or improve training just a bit, it's worth it. So in my time off, I do a lot of cycling, um, Surfing, I'm pretty close to the ocean. I do that. Uh, I used to run every day, but you know I'm 50 now, so my knees don't actually hold up like yeah. they used to. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear your, I feel your pain on that. For those of you that knew me as a narc, I don't know if you did, Marcus, when I when I promoted that in narcs, I told you I was eating in gas stations, and I, I wasn't joking. I was, I'm five eight, and I weighed 276 pounds, and uh, which is easy to do. I tell you, you know, you're eating, yeah, you know, you're living on rock stars and candy bars and it's bad. It's all bad. So I wasn't very intentional with planning my diet. And so I, I got really fat and I didn't notice what the impact was until I got back into a black and white, had to put a vest on, had to put a gum belt on and had to get into a foot pursuit and it sucked. And so I became highly motivated to change that. And so I, I went on a very, very strict disciplined program 
It wasn't anyone's program. It just decided to stop eating sugar, to only drink water. As you see, I have water right here. Um, and I, I started walking every day. I was pretty fat, so you can't walk too much when you're fat. And, and then uh, when I lost a lot of weight, I was able to jog. And then from jogging, I was running. And and by the end of it, I was I was doing, uh, I was doing back to back twelve k's on the weekend. Nice. Yeah, and that's a so, big deal. Yeah, and uh, I I don't tend to do things halfway. I do things all the way, and so uh, my knees suffered. We picked up on that. Yeah. You're, not a, you're not a halfway committed fellow. So now it's about cycling, a lot of yoga, and some surfing. Um, yeah, I uh, I was always pretty flexible, but right about mid 40s, I realized I better start putting some work into this. <laughs> like uh, in the probably the last two years, like every day, every day, every day. And, uh, and I didn't realize how inflexible I was. And then in about a year, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, look at that. Not an issue anymore. The pain's gone. You know, I can – so it is pretty interesting. <clears throat> so back to training a little bit. We focus a lot on procedures and changing behavior. But training's a lot more than that, right? We develop skills. Um, we develop uh, ways to think or rulers to measure incidents by. Tell us a little bit about your uh, – experience that especially we and you you have more experience in this than i do but the little bit i travel around the country or talk to other places we are fortunate that post is uh as progressive and really as funded as it is which you know it, it goes cyclical just like everyone else's budget compared to a lot of other states what's your uh experience with california training and then kind of overall the concepts, um, which you kind of talked to a little bit, but tell us a little bit more about that. What do you, what do you think we're doing good in law enforcement? What do you think we can do better? Because we, there's a theme in Cato where we either have people that are theorists, academics, tell us what to do, or we have really good people that are practitioners. But it's very rare that we combine people such as yourself, such as Sid, such as Travis, Adam, some of the people in Cato that combine the theory with practical application because it's not always easy to do. And the, and I think the more we rely on technology and YouTube versus reading books, the harder it is for our mind to bridge that gap. Yeah. And and one thing, Marcus, that I found is the practitioners are, are usually doing the right thing, but they don't know how to explain it. They can't explain how they solve the problem. And the academics, they, can't ex they can explain how the problem should be solved, but how to get there is a different story for them. So there's definitely a gap in both ways. Um, so I, I do dig into the research to find out some of the science behind learning and, and how that works and what we can do to improve our ability to learn things. And there's a couple goals for training. Generally speaking, training occurs uh, like in a law enforcement agency if there's a new skill that needs to be taught to, to the officers. That could be an update in law. That could be a new piece of equipment um, or a new tactic that, that uh, we have to learn. Or it could be um, to correct behavior. Maybe someone could use some more training in, on traffic stops or, or whatever it might be. But we might want to change behavior or give someone new tools to go out and do a job. One of the things that, that uh, I have it written up on my board up there, there's a guy named Miyamoto Musashi. You guys ever heard of him? Yes. The Book of Five Rings. Mm -hmm. There's a quote that he says about training. The purpose of today's training is to defeat yesterday's understanding. And when I hear that, what it reminds me of is that we have to look to the future with training. If we always rely on our past victories, those are behind us already. And, and the world changes every day. So... Um, you're not in the same place twice. You grow as a person. The society changes around you. And so we have to be adaptive adaptive rather to that. Post does pretty good at identifying the issues ahead. And if you get into the post catalog, you'll see a, a course for just about everything. There's, there's courses for pretty much anything you want. Um, what's interesting, though, is when, when you graduate the academy, and both of you have been through an academy, so you know the rigor of taking a test. In, in mine, we had them kind of at the end of the week and we were always kind of dreading it because, you know, it's a very hard pass or fail line on it. How many classes can you guys remember after graduating the academy where there's a written test that your job depended on it? 
and cops hate tests. They hate tests. And and what's the purpose of a test? To, to show that learning took place, to make sure that they're receiving the information that we're instructing. And they hate tests, man. They do. The only class, and, and when I looked at my, I downloaded my post, uh, uh, not roster, what's it called? Your uh, training roster or whatever it is. And in the last 27 years, I've taken hundreds of classes. Some of them I can't even remember, which is tragic because I spent an entire day. I should have had something. But the one class that I can remember, there was a test, was the state wiretap class. Oh, yeah. I yeah. remember guys, that test well. Do, oh, yeah. yeah. There's people that didn't pass yeah. that test, and oh, they had yeah. to go take the class again. Yeah. Yeah, and they shame you with that phone line on oh. it, too. Oh, yeah. You got to call the phone line. Yeah. Kenny Brayton didn't pass again. <laughs> yeah. No, I I, uh, I took that test many times because it expires. You're right, though. So Very that's, that's the tests. only one that I can think of. You know, there's some skills tests, right? You know, you're going to go to EVOC. You're going to go to range. And there's there's some things that you do. But when you, when you go to a, spend a week in a course and and there's really no measurement, quantifiable measurement, and we talked about rubrics earlier, of whether or not success was met. Did they learn the new skills to do their job or to do whatever the, the purpose of training was? And, and here's the point that I wanted to bring home with this is that even though that we might pass a test in class, that doesn't mean that that behavior is going to transfer to the street. There's things that can happen. You could go to class. You could be the best student. You can get 100% on the test. You can engage. You could you know, be active in the course. You could, you could be a training officer. But when the incident comes up, that you trained to handle perfectly, you could fall apart, completely fall apart. And, and some of us have seen that if you've been an FTO, you have a kid that's fresh out of the academy that knows exactly the mechanics of how to do a traffic stop, how to take a crash, how to handle a domestic violence call. And they have the deer in the headlight look. And so I always became very curious about that. And, and uh, when I started learning about adult learning theory, I started to find out why that's actually happening. Um, and what I found was the way that some of the courses are developed didn't really lend themselves to people having that knowledge encoded permanently. So in other words, they were able to pass the test to explain what the class was about, but, and that's a very low level on this thing that we call this ladder, right? And so that's about the bottom where it's understand and explain. What we want is midway up is apply. Can they apply it? At the very top, it's evaluate and assess. But, um, Which is Kenny? Bloom's taxonomy. Mm-hmm. Which, exactly. Which we skipped over. Yeah, we might have skipped over that today. <laughs> <laughs> so Bloom's taxonomy, it, it informs us on essentially what success looks like. So when you attach your learning outcomes to Bloom's, that's how you can tell if the learning is going to be encoded later, if they can apply it. And if they can apply it, that means they understand it and, and they can recite it and all those very low things on, on Bloom's. So when we're developing classes and this is for anybody that, that's responsible for training their teams or whatever it might be, you got to look at the outcome. What do you want this person to be able to do? And that's where you start. Um, whether it's um, breaching a metal door versus a screen door versus an aluminum door, depending on the hinges go in, out, there's ways to do that, right? And if you want somebody to be able to look at something, recognize what intervention has to take place, you have to train them on all of the outcomes that could be involved in that versus here's a ram, there's a door, go hit it. Because that's often what we do. Yeah, and you're, what you're talking about is def really defining what the success looks like. You're right. Exactly. Learn, the learning is – the success is learning. Okay, well, we'll describe what that is, right? And it's not just passing the test. So, yeah, I, I really like that. I think a lot of times we, we do it because it's a process, but we don't take the time to talk about – what is it exactly? What's the successful outcomes? And, and it can be just be bullet points. Successful students will identify the following. And that's something I never learned until I hooked up with somebody like you that's involved in training. And they're like, hey, man, like you got to get a little more granular on what you're trying to accomplish today and how you measure that. We call those learning objectives. We call those essential understandings. Those are those broad topics that, that you can actually narrow down and break into modules. Um, and so it's so important to really define those. And when you define those, then you create some type of learning experience, as we call it, an LX in, in geek terms. Uh, you desi design an LX that's going to give them the ability to not only in, have that encoded in their head, but actually be able to demonstrate that they can do it. And ideally, they're going to even climb higher up the ladder and be able to teach it to somebody else. 
I've always, you know, you, you could see that some of the, the most expertise people teach what they know. If you want to be an expert in something, go teach it because you have to find out everything about it and you have to know the answers to all of it. And um, so when someone has to teach how to breach a door, that's the one of the best experiences they can have because they're going to become an expert in it. And that can apply to anything, any kind of training that we're doing. So the idea that when we go through training in the context of law enforcement is to make better decisions. We want them to officers to make better decisions on the street. Um, and so we go through these learning experiences. We go through these eight hour classes, these week long classes, and we want them to have these takeaways. So when they hit the streets, they're able to apply it and use the best practices, be in compliance with law, policy. Um, everybody knows we're on YouTube within minutes. We had a pretty significant car chase here the other day, and uh, my boss sent me a link. It was on YouTube within minutes. It, it was amazing how the speed at which that happens. So there's some things I wanted to talk about, about actually encoding learning. And I'm not a neuroscientist, uh, so the approach that I'm going to talk to you about is through um, the education point of view, from higher education. Um, a lot of concepts carry over, though, so I'll, I'll explain it as I know it. So in your brain, you have 100 billion neurons. That's more stars in, in the Milky Way in your brain. Each of those neurons has, depending on where it's located, up to about, they say, 15,000 connections to other cells, other brain cells. In the prefrontal cortex, there, there's more than in the back. And when we learn something and we repeat it, those connections become stronger. There's more and more connections. And anytime that we have a thought or that we critically think about something, it's a process in our head that, that's occurring. There's an electrochemical process that's moving in those patterns in our brain. So the more you do something, the more automated it becomes. They call that automaticity, right? And so you 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 start to have to you start to be able to do something without thinking about it. I remember. Do you guys did you guys ever use the was it an SS three holster, or oh yeah, thumb rock mm -hmm. pull? It, it was yeah. a very defined sequence, and I had done it thousands of times, thousands of times. That encoded right. And so every time I had to do it, I didn't have to think. Okay, thumb rock lift. None of that happened. But when I first started over and over and over. And then we decided to get new holsters, just like we decided to get rid of the Crown Vic and, and you know drive different cars now. And so you have to learn things over. And that's actually a process where some people, they feel pain. It's miserable to have to learn a new thing because we're actually having to make new connections in areas that we have never made before. And so that's, that's kind of how it works. There's these things called synapses. Those are those pathways. And the more you do it, the more automated your, your conduct becomes when you're in a situation. So prefrontal cortex is where our decision-making, policy, best practices, critical thinking, all of that's right up here up front. And the, the issue that we have is that when we get involved in a critical incident, it kind of shuts off. I've heard other people, so I call it a file cabinet. So we have all these things filed up right up here, right in our prefrontal cortex. Um, I think I've heard other people call it a, a slideshow. I've heard other people call it a drawer. You know, there's different names for it. It's the same thing. It's, a, it's our way of describing how we revert to our training. When, when our nervous system gets hijacked because of stress, if we don't regulate that, we go into this fight or flight, this panic mode. Some people panic and it just shuts off. And you get the deer in the headlight look that the trainee gets that has practiced this a thousand times. And so what we want to be able to do is regulate that and get more access to our prefrontal cortex. So that's one of the challenges that we have with, uh, with training. And the law that kind of describes this is the Yerkes-Dodson law. And if you could imagine a bell curve plotted on a chart, vertically is your performance going from weak to strong. And going from left to right is your, your stress level, your arousal, left to right. So the more to the right and the more to the top would be high performance. And that's where we want to be. We want to have high performance under high stress. What happens is you got to think of it as a bell curve where right in the middle, our performance goes up as the stress gets more intense. But there's a cutoff point, a threshold. And once you hit that threshold, it completely drops. Your performance goes, all of your critical thinking, all of the policy, all the stuff that you've trained to do over and over and over, gone. 
and you stand there with nothing and you have, you have no response for whatever is in front of you. Um, and so new, new people from the, from the academy, um, they don't have a lot of tolerance for that, for the stress, like people that have been around a while. So if you look at a person that's, that's a veteran officer that's gone through critical incidents many, many times, you'll see their bell curve is shifted to the right. Their stress can still drop them off at some point, but they have a higher tolerance for it. Whereas a new person, never gone through it or only has done it a few times, it's going to drop off pretty quickly until they develop this thing called action competency, which, which we'll talk about later. Um, and so understanding that is huge. And I tell this to FTOs all the time who introduce stress to, I, I, none of them can really explain why. It's because I want them to be able to perform or I want them to know what it's really like. Inoculation. Stress inoculation, inoculation, which actually I believe in if it's done right. There's some things you can do to, to make stress inoculation. Have you heard the, the scenario where they put you with a sock on your head and they put you in a room and they pull it off and you have to respond to whatever situation? A lot of people that are veteran officers will get freaked out by that. And if you measure their heart rate, before they even go in the room, it's bum, 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 it's going. It's it's like a full sprint. And they pop it off and it's like, oh my God, what do I do? I don't know what to do. And it's something they've handled a million times. But it's the idea of the stress. Now, when you do that with a new person who doesn't have the basic skills to handle that kind of thing or hasn't done it before, they're gonna they're just gonna sit in the chair and fall apart. So the way to increase their inoculation distress is not only to subject them to it but to do it incrementally. So you turn up the dial slowly instead of all the way at 10. You don't want to start it at 10. If you do it at 10, what happens is fear encodes instead of solutions. And so instead of reverting to training, reverting to experience, noticing the threats in the room, the fear is what's encoded. So now every time you go back to that situation, and we'll talk about TCE, the theory of constructed emotion, that's where that comes from. We create these training scars and we actually, it's the opposite of what we were trying to accomplish and much harder. Instead of creating new paths, we actually have to fix the old path before we can even create the new path. So it was kind of my question just to clarify it because a lot of agencies are doing this. Are you saying that doing that kind of training is just not productive or it's actually counterproductive to where it's, it has a negative effect or you're just wasting your time? I, I think that if it's, again, if it's done correctly, it can be, there, there's a lot of good things. In fact, the, probably the way to do it would be just to, to tell them, okay, you're going to be put into a situation with, um, you know, two people fighting in a room. And when we say go, the situation's live, no hat, no, you know, covering the face. Okay. And so they were, they're able to kind of see that kind of takes the mystery out of it. They could handle it. What we want to do is encode success. Oftentimes, when you go to like a, a, shoot, a, no, a shoot, no shoot situation, everybody has a gun. And so we're trained. Every time we see a person, we're just going to blast them. And some of the newer scenarios, it's not. So you have to critically think about it. But if everything is a threat, then you start to view the world that way. So there's a value to it if the person going through it has the basics handled. So it, it's, it's something that you have to incrementally increase. So I, I've done it and I did okay, but I was freaked out and I've been on it for a while. Well, and you're talking also, if you don't know what to expect or you're nervous about it or like everyone's watching you, right? Like in a training environment, the physiological response that you've already created in your mind, because you're thinking this is worse than it probably is going to be now is hijacking that blood pressure, your pulse rate. So when you finally do start you're actually not starting from the beginning your your needle's already pegged which is going to create that problem especially if you don't have the skills versus like you said incrementally okay now i know what to expect because in in real life yes you do get surprised in real life yes you don't get to see but we're not trying to make it real life all the way we're trying to build you up to preparing for when in real life you have that situation. So almost like building those neural pathways, you, you don't want to scar them. You want to slowly build the road so that they're fast and smooth. Yeah. Is, that, is that a good metaphor? Training scars, like you mentioned, Marcus, is a, is, a, is a very good term for that. And the reason why is, like you said, it's something that we're going to have to repair. And to make matters worse, if someone has handled the critical incident negatively and didn't have a good outcome, when they go into that, 
their point of reference, their file cabinet, if you will, is going back to that incident where they didn't win. Maybe they didn't get a good debrief. Maybe they didn't get some training to help them out. And now they're put in a very similar situation. And so what we want to do is go back to the basics with people. Um, if we're going to put them in an environment where we're going to increase stress, do it incrementally and start them off you know, at the lower levels and, and increase it because that's how we get better. We go into this area where we're uncomfortable. That's where growth happens, not in our comfort zone. So we want to, we want to breach that outer ring of comfort and get people to, to actually feel some stress. And I remember in, uh, we had a, a machine with a little paintball gun at the top. Did you guys ever oh, shoot that? Oh, yeah. Fats machine, yeah. It was a fats machine, yeah. and it had a little turret on the top. And if you came out of cover, the, the, the dude would hit the button, and it would nail you. And so there was something at stake. And so every time I went in there, I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to get shot. So in that situation, that kind of learning experience actually encodes better. Um, because when, when, you're emotionally, when you're emotionally aroused, all of the training actually sticks better. That's why we play funny videos. That's why we play scary videos. It's all that. That's how you remember things. If you attach an emotion to the story, you will never forget the story. You won't. And so in that, in that circumstance, there's this, oh my God, I'm going to get shot by this thing. I better, you know, pay attention. I was like doing rolls, dunking for cover. And I got took one right in the knuckle. I still remember it. It, it bounced off and it was awful. So um, there's a lot we can do to improve how we're using stress. We can use stress as a tool. Stress is a good tool for our job because we have stress. That's just the nature of, of our work. Um, but what we don't want to do is, like you mentioned, create a scar that's going to prohibit someone from actually growing because they're going to be kind of stuck in this pattern where they're not able to get out. Which leads you to the theory of constructed emotion for decision making. Yeah, there's these guys um, that did this study in 2019 and they they – they studied decision-making and our ability to decide on things under stressful circumstances. They call it evocative circumstances. And uh, here's a quote from that study. It says, there are important neurobiological and energetic mechanisms that support decision-making among personnel who must make high stakes decision, decisions rather, under extremely st stressful conditions on a regular basis. So in other words, when we have to make a decision as law enforcement officers, there's usually something at stake. Okay, it could be someone's life, it could be someone's livelihood, it could be your life if if you're the if you're responding to something where there's some danger or a threat, and this happens regularly. And what they're saying is the mental processes that we go through in those circumstances affect our decision making. So that's our cognitive processes, the emotions that we feel, what we're perceiving about the scene and the world around us, it's all shaped by this, this uh, function of our brain to keep things normal. And it's a term called allostasis. Allostasis is the brain's measure or a way to, to, to level out your systems to create balance and what we call homeostasis, where everything is just kind of working normally. And when that occurs, our decision-making is impacted by it. So... In command college, we had a doctor, I believe it was Dr. Zach, and he studied the impact of uh, oxytocin, which is they call it the love hormone. Oxytocin is released when you, when you hug someone or when you feel affection. And he was actually able to measure this hormone um, from people in different circumstances. And he does some amazing work with it. But he came to command college and, and told us his story about the brain, because he's, he's actually a scientist and studies the brain. And what he said was, the brain is a lazy Republican. And right. so, I, I, you know, I, I was like, well, do okay. you use Kenny's name specifically? <laughs> he got a lot of blank stares when he, when he said that, because no one know, knew what it meant. But what he meant was that um, conservatives, Republicans are generally fiscally conservative. They don't want to expend resources. Well, the brain is the same way. It doesn't want to learn new things. It wants to revert to the, the slide deck or to the file cabinet where all the experiences you have reside. And so in order to make good decisions, in order not to get emotionally hijacked by what's happening, in order to get your prefrontal cortex back, what they're saying is you have to regulate that stress response. A number of ways you can do that. Um, you guys have heard of the term effective realism. So there's many cases that we've seen uh, come to light in the media where an object 
was thought to be a weapon when it was a cell phone. And part of what explains that, and, and the study discusses it, is when you have a fear response encoded for any type of stressful circumstance, like a training exercise where your a hood is ripped off of you and you're freaking out, that fear response encodes and you view the world as a threatening place all the time, which in some neighborhoods, you know what? That's probably how it is for cops especially, but that's not always the case. And the problem that we have is we have difficulty transitioning from that mindset where we're surviving, we're staying alive, taking care of our partner, taking care of our beat into another neighborhood where that's not so much of an issue. We don't make that transition very well. And, and if we do, it's very taxing on us to, to do that. There's no other profession that has to, to make this pendulum swing where you're going from, from someone in a neighborhood fighting for your life to going home to your family back and forth every single day. It takes a toll on you. Yeah. Physical, mental. Yeah. Emotionally. And it comes out in a number of ways. And, and we've seen our, our, our people at work, our friends, our, our associates, uh, some of the things they've struggled with. Cops have a high degree of divorce. There's a lot of alcohol, alcoholism. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we have people get involved in risky situations that, that create problems for their career, you know, and, and all of this can be attributed, not all of it, but a lot of it can be attributed to how we actually handle our stress. And when we're talking about the brain as an organ that's trying to keep things normal so we can make better decisions, and we reduce that to an electrochemical reaction that's occurring, brain cells talking to each other is an electrochemical reaction. That's physical. So the things that we feed ourselves, if we're, if we're drinking alcohol versus drinking water, if we're eating out of McDonald's versus, I shouldn't bag on McDonald's, but fast food versus, you know, um, something healthy for us, all of it's garbage in, garbage out. And so if we're not mindfully taking care of ourselves, how can we expect different outcomes with our thinking? So my challenge is, and I would challenge anybody, is to, to clean up your intake. Clean up what you're consuming, not just by food. What are you watching? How much doom scrolling are you doing on the news? That, Im that impacts you too. It, it, it reaffirms what you might already be seeing at work, which might not be incorrect because we only deal with a portion of the population. Yeah, great point. And, and you, you're going to get really a confirmation bias because now you're going to seek information that confirms your belief. And so if you're not careful, that leads to all kinds of stress in your body. That's why we die of organ failure, you know, 10 years after we retire. All that stress is still in there. It doesn't come out. All those kind of impacts. Very true. There's a lot of science behind that. Oh, there's a... It, and it's coming out every day. Yeah, the body of evidence is just growing. And for whatever reason, we are the last, uh, maybe not the last, but we, uh, we're very resistant to this. And uh, there's a lot of, lot of destigmatization, if that's a word. On, on the idea of mental health and law enforcement. Um, but, I, and I could tell you from growing up in the 90s, in, as a young cop in the 90s, it's different then than it is now. Yeah, and we at least talk about it. We do, <laughs> we do. Yeah. And someday I'll tell you about my, ex I've taken two psych exams, three psych exams for the three different agencies I've worked for, and they're different every single time. Yeah. I took one a year ago, and it was different than the one I took 20 years ago, and then 27 years ago. They, they, they changed from sure. the incidents that we're involved with. And hopefully, hopefully they're changing for the better in that particular arena. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm not saying you're getting better. I'm just saying the <laughs> tests get better. I don't, I don't know if you're better. Well, there might be hope for me. I don't know. So back to the brain. There's a, there's a guy named uh, Dinota and Huta. I think that's how you say it. And they did the study called Complex Motor Learning and Police Training, the Applied Cognitive and Clinical Perspectives. And... What that study did is it really, really honed in on our ability to perceive what's happening in our environment. Um, here's a quote from that study. It's policing skills, including physical capabilities and mental resiliency, are modifiable by training and experience and have an influence on decision making and performance in the field. So what they're saying is physically how we're taking care of ourselves is going to impact your thinking. And we are graded on our thinking. We're graded on our decision makings because our decisions are followed by behavior. And when that behavior is not in alignment with the public expectation of law enforcement, with our mission statement, with our mandate, 
then there's some dissonance going on and, and we have to really examine what's happening. And you could, you could point it back to training. You could point it, you know, at, at supervision and accountability and, and all that. But what, what a lot of people and, and especially cops fail to understand is we are human beings. We have a physical body that handles stress just like the person that works at Starbucks or a banker or an insurance agent or whatever it might be. We are, we are a person. And so we're subject to emotions. We're subject to bias. All of those things can influence how we think and feel and all that. So this study was, was pretty interesting. Essentially, what they say is that the officers that are at a critical incident will assign meaning to cues in their environment. That could be a number of things. When you work in a, in a beat and you see graffiti, you see uh, hypes on the street, there's a lot of little cues that, that for most people would just go under the radar, but we pick up on them, even at a, kind of at a subconscious level. That tells us, okay, well, there's some graffiti. I recognize it. It's a certain color. That means something, right? And so that's a cue in our environment. And so our ability to perceive those things helps us understand how we should arrange or organize our response in that neighborhood. So in addition to seeing things, that we have other organs that help us perceive. So we have hearing, we have smell, we have taste. And what's interesting about this study is that what they say is that when you go into a critical incident, we can only really process one stream at a time. So if you notice when you're watching, and you've seen this before, someone gets into an, a, a car wreck and they're pulled out of it and they just have that glazed look on their face. And they're just staring in complete disbelief. They're looking at trauma or whatever it might be. And you're yelling at them, ma'am, come out of the roadway, come out of the, and they can't hear you. It's completely shut off. It's the same kind of thing where you can really, in a stressful incident, only handle one or two streams of information. And then you're going to probably bounce back between the two of them. And so what, what this study says is the more that we can take in in, in our environment, if you're listening, if you're seeing things, if your sense of smell is active, all of that stuff plays into your ability to go back to your filing cabinet, get out the actual relevant tool that you've been trained on to deal with it. The problem that we have is that we don't regulate that stress response enough to take in as much information as we can. Now, there's times where you're only going to have so much information and you have to make a decision. I get it. That happens, especially at the tempo of some of these critical incidents that just they unfold rapidly. Right. And so we have to decide. In hindsight, you'll remember, wow, all of a sudden you'll remember that person was saying something to me. But at the time, you didn't actually consciously perceive it. Yeah, you don't process it. Later but, on, you do though. Mm -hmm. And I've been to a number of critical incidents where it's like, oh man, I remember this happened or, or this happened later on. It's the most profound thing. So this study talks about that. Um, so our attention becomes kind of selective. It, it, it could be focused on what your, if your eyes see a, a bulge in a pocket, if um, you, you hear screaming or, or uh, someone asking for help, you're going to focus on that and you have to kind of bounce back between all of these sources that, that feed into, into your decision making. Um, and we talked about how too much of that will, can put you over the edge. Well, I, don't want, I don't know if I want to say over the edge, but if you look at that bell curve, your performance will drop. It's, you're not over the edge. Your performance will drop when that stress hits too high. And again, the human body is an, is an organ that is going to function optimally if you're feeding it the right things, if you're, if you're taking care of it, if you're getting enough sleep. Very, very important, enough exercise. Um, and so as the complexity of the situation increases, the stress also goes up. And so the more monkey wrenches that are thrown into it, or the less cards that you have in your deck to deal with it, the more creative you're gonna to have to be. And what we wanna be able to do, and we talked about the, um, the continuum. God, why can't I think of the name of it right now? You mean Bloom's? Bloom's. Bloom's taxonomy? So when, you, when you're talking about Bloom's, what, what, what we want people to be able to do is refer to the principles. Because if you don't have, if you've never been in that situation and, and the stress is overwhelming, you wanna be able to know, well, why am I here? What am I here to do? What should I be worried about the most right now? And regulating your stress response, it's not going to get you all the way there. You need to have discipline. You need to train. You need to pay attention in class. You need to take care of yourself. But if you can regulate the stress response, you're going to have a lot better chance of accessing all of the information you do have and perceiving all of the inputs that you have around you. So that's going to help a lot. 
and you've experienced this. If you think about being a new patrol officer or deputy and you go to, say, a domestic violence call where there's a lot of things going on at the same time and you're not sure which one's more important than the other. And so you don't do it very efficiently and you get overwhelmed quickly. And then the more repetitions you get, the more you realize what to focus on and what not to focus on and focus your efforts and prioritize your actions and sequence the things that you do in an efficient order. And that's just a patrol call. A critical incident is the same thing. And then it's just a chess game. It's a math problem. But that's if you're healthy, your body's functioning properly, your brain's functioning properly, and you have some of this, uh, some of these habits are now automatic. So your, your, your energy, and I'm asking you to correct me if I'm wrong, your, your energy now isn't focused on these tasks. You can function the basics well and smooth so you can keep your higher functioning thought processes and decision making. That, that little bit of energy you have is going to that versus basic stuff. And that's why as you get more repetitions, you get better. Is that, is that, that a good example? You just defined the term action competency. And there's, there's not a lot of people in the, in the law enforcement world that really understand what that means, action competency. And it, it's actually um, a combination of many things, and repetition is one of them. So when you're, when you're talking about action competency, what you're, what you're really saying, it's a person's self-perceived ability to act in a situation. So as an administrator, I'm asking all those people on the wall right there behind me to go out and do a thing to go make car stops, to go stop people, to go handle calls for service. I'm asking them to go do that. The, the people with a high degree of action competency that have been around a while, done it a few times, are going to do it with less thought. They don't have to think about where to park their car, how to get out, putting themselves out on the radio, you know, all of those things, they just, they come over time. And so your confidence in yourself improves through repetition. But in addition to that, we also refer to the ability to complete an actual process. So have you used a certain piece of equipment before? You could talk about it in class. You could read the manual. You could hear what other people have said about it. But until you've actually had your hands on that item and have had to manipulate it, used it in the context that it's being used, that needs to be used in, your degree of, of competency with that piece of equipment is going to go down quite a bit. So the more time that you've had, the more reps with something, and I told you about the holster before, the over and over and over drawing the gun the same exact way builds that. So now I don't have to even think about it. I just, you just do it. So, and, and if we're talking about a training context, one of the things that you can do to help, especially at a critical incident, and this is going to sound kind of, it might sound kind of minor, but when we think about things like where is a piece of equipment located on the truck? And you're at a door and you need to get in, but you don't have the piece of equipment with you. And you tell somebody, hey, go get this. Have they done it? Do they know how to open the cabinet? Have they had to actually run with it wearing their kit? And if, if the first time they've done that, is that a scene? That's not good because now all the stuff we've trained on to do is being held up by some stupid task that we could have trained for. And so what I tell people is, Train on doing some mundane, basic things. Know where everything on your truck is. Know where all your equipment is located in your patrol car. You shouldn't have to think about where to find your clipboard at, at, during the incident. And do so, it during the day. Do it at night. Do yeah. it in the rain. Yeah. Do it with one hand. Do you know? Yeah. Do do those basic things that are boring and not fun because you won't think about them when it does count. Remove when seconds it. count for you to get that there. Remove it from the equation completely. Yeah. Become confident in those small, basic tasks. And that's going to help you have the more, more confidence to, to actually handle the bigger things a lot better. And so competence in actual processes of manipulating equipment is huge. Um, but that's not enough. So action competency also refers to your ability to understand why we're doing it. Understand the principle for using that piece of equipment or for a, for a certain action we're taking or a process we're undergoing. Um, if you don't know the why or it wasn't explained to you well, you might not be as committed to doing it. So it really helps. And if you're a leader in any way, a supervisor, a leader, you need to explain to your people why you would you expect whatever it is you expect of them. Give them the understanding of why when they say, go do this, 
why it's necessary, why it's needed, why they have to report back, why they have to put themselves out on the radio or whatever it might be, all of those little things. Um, and finally, it's, it's how much time you've actually done it. And you talk to the old timers that have been around a bit, an old timer now doesn't have a lot of time on, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you ask them how many, how many, you know, homicides have you, have you handled around here? Not many. Um, but in other places, yeah, there, there's people that have done it quite a bit and you get experience real quick. So the more time that you have doing those critical things, the better, but the final leg of this stool, and I've added this, this is, this is me is institutional support. So I just told you that, that on a daily basis, I ask all those people up there to go out and handle calls for service for the community. In the back of their mind, if they had the, the training, the experience, the, the competency, the, the, the training to use, and use something, they understand the principles, how much more likely are they to go out and do it if they know that their supervisor is backing them and supporting them? Mm -hmm. And so it's huge. It, it's, it's a major investment in people to explain to them Follow policy, follow procedures, ask for help, and I got your back. So when, when, when a person knows that they're, they're going to be taken care of, we, we can't always see people as numbers. And I'm probably one of the worst people about this, you know, when, when you're looking at, at budgets and that kind of thing and, and metrics for, for success. Um, but when you humanize people and explain to them that you see them as that, you're going to get a better, a better response from it. And so they're going to have more of this self-perceived ability to act. They're going to be more likely to succeed in whatever it is you're asking them to do. And so that's action competency. And if they, they know the why, they can make minor adjustments and stay within, you know, where we want them to go without having to call back because they know what the purpose is. So I don't have to ask my new questions because I'm like, I understand the why I can execute this and make an adjustment to get to where we need to go. Exactly. Especially if they feel supported in making those decisions. So, uh, in summary, intentionally train for outcomes that are desired Define what success looks like for me. And, and I want you to elaborate on this a little because this isn't something I'm naturally good at. And some of the people in Cato are great at it. But what will a successful student demonstrate? So if it's a physical skill, a successful student will be able to do A, B, and C. A fully trained student will understand the concept of using tempo as a component of time to gain an advantage over an adversary or whatever it might be, but define that and build it backwards. Now, do we have to develop that into modules because it's a complex skill or is it just a, a simple task? Is that about right? It is. And, and, and the reason why we talk about, we call it backwards design in, in instructional design. And in, in instructional design is just a, a theory on how to get people to learn something. Um, how can you build a curriculum that people are going to actually have measurable takeaways? And when you start from the finish line, where you want them to end, what you want them to be able to do, you build backwards and you start to ask yourself, well, how can I measure whether they do that or not? That's the assessment. And you have to come up with a rubric. What does it look like? And you have to be very specific. Um, so if a traffic stop is done and they don't put their location out on the radio, you know, that's, that's a big fail. That should be a very low score in the metric or in the rubric. Um, and so by defining the outcome, having a very clear assessment and making the training real, it's going to encode better. That's not where it all stops, though. There, there's a lot more as far as uh, encoding wins in our training. Yeah, and that's one thing you touched on that really hit home for me because I think this is a, a cultural thing in law enforcement because it is a stressful job and that's just our, our natural response to just stress, stress, stress. And it makes sense in our head, I think, in the simplest terms that, well, if we do this, it'll translate to the street. Um, the way you outlined it, this is, there's actually a process to that. There's actually a methodical process to inducing that. Um, and you said stress levels induced in training should be moderated as the skills improve. And I think that's huge. That's a that's a huge training value to us um, to take that back to our agencies and actually understand that there's there's an actual method 
for inducing this to make sure we don't induce training scars to make sure we're not going backwards in our training did i did i sum that up that's that is dead on yeah you know stress is a tool we cannot eliminate stress in our job but it's something that we can we can use to our advantage it just has to be done at the right time and in the right context and uh you know it's going to vary based on on who you're dealing with the new guy not going to accept is not going to respond as well to stress as the person that's that's done it before so i'm not saying don't stress people out in training i think that that fear is a is a good teacher um fear that you're going to get hit by the pellet you know the pellet gun or the paint gun or whatever it might be it's you know the shock vest <laughs> now is there any i mean if i could if i could go into that a little bit further we're we're comparing that as far as levels of stress versus newer officers more more seasoned experienced officers is there any just personality component to that for individual people that that you found or is it just strictly based on on experience well here's part of the the challenge that we have with with um with new hires is some of them have not been through any type of adversity. And so when they get to work, the smallest thing is, is, is huge for them. And so we, we, you know, we have to ask ourselves how much time do we want to spend adjusting our processes to, to this person? And I can tell you right now that there's more and more. There's more people that come into the workforce now. We have some Gen Zers now. Um, that have not had the kind of adversity where character is built with your tolerance for stress is built. All of those things transfer into our work. Sure. The stuff that you experience growing up transfers into your work. And so if you're still living at home with mom, you've never had a full-time job. Um, you've never been responsible. Kenny can hear you. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love my mom. I'd probably live with her if I had to, but you know um, what, I guess what I'm saying is that, if the first time they've ever been stressed out is on FTO, then you're it's going to be a struggle. <laughs> you're going to have some problems. Yeah, let's talk uh, real quick. So I've I've experienced training that was at such a high stress level that it was just a series of losses. And while it made an impression on me, like this is how easy it is for me to lose my life or lose, uh, you know, the critical incident or, or you know the scenario. Um there's a balance, right? Cause I've also been involved in training where everything was a win and I'm like, okay, well this isn't realistic either. You're, you're actually building uh, false confidence in my ability because I know this is not realistic to what's going to happen in real life. And so there is a balance there, right? So when you talk about, Hey, we, we build wins, right? We don't want to create training scars, but the, the key thing you said, and you didn't stress it very much, but I, I want to make sure we talk about it. It still has to be realistic and you, you don't want to train them to lose. You know, we don't teach people how to die, right? Like we don't need to teach you how to die, but we also don't want you to think that you can't die. So, you know, that's a very extreme you know, example on patrol, but does that make sense? So when you said realistic, that's a very key component of we train for wins. We don't create scars, but we make it realistic so that you can apply it directly to real life. Yeah. I, I think that it does a very, it's a disservice to our, our people when our training doesn't reflect the actual thing that we're asking them to do. So when I, when I teach somebody to do something, it should be directly connected to them being able to actually do it. Um, you know, and, and there's so many examples, whether it's manipulating, you know, a piece of equipment, driving, evoc. There's so many different applications to this. Um, it has to be as real as it can be, you know, and, and we're getting better about that. I, 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 rem- I remember when we didn't have red guns. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. I, I do remember that. And yeah. I remember when, when, uh, when those came out, it's like, wow, this is what it's like to actually have to hold this thing up all day long. You yeah. Know? Yeah. yeah. Is, so now I know how it feels and, and, you know, uh, to, to actually feel those things. But when, when, when I'm talking about generating wins, we want them to know what success looks like, but we also at the same time want them to understand the consequence of failure. And if the failure results from a departure from what their training is, that's what we want to show them. Here's where you departed from what you're told to do. Here's what happened. Mm, Let's do good, it again. That's a good way to put and that. You, and you restart it. And okay, you, you screwed up right here now. And, and you could slowly just 
and this takes time, right? I mean, it, to do it right, it takes time. And I get it. We have no time. It's, it's tough. Um, but if you want training to encode, it has to be with a win. They have to understand the consequences of departing from it. Um, and then you got to debrief it. How did you feel? What could you have done better? And, and communicate. There's, there's a lot wrapped into it. It's a, it's a pretty big topic, but to only encode losses sets people up to have a fear mentality for everything and to pretty much fear the world around. I remember in the academy, every conversation I had, my hands had to be up like this. I was ordering food at a restaurant like this, you know, with my hands up and doing this. And my wife was looking at me. She's like, who are you? Yeah. And I'm like, oh man. You yeah. Know, so that that's the kind of academy I went to back in the nineties yeah. where it was very, you know, because that, because that thing's going to kill you. Yeah. And I was prepared for it. When Everyone's going to kill you. Everything yeah, is yeah. a threat. And you eat lunch. <laughs> you're ready to, yeah, you, you know, garden your yeah. food. And it was, a, it was a lot different than it is now. And I've, I've taught in the academies now and, and, um, and we're doing a lot better with that. Um, but we got to encode some wins in training. So if you're an instructional designer, if you're a FTO, give your trainees some wins and explain how they won. That's going to help. Yeah. Especially when they're doing it right. Right. We, we don't, I, I always think about checking the rear guard, right? You're in the stack, you're on a search and we always check the rear guard, right? When the rear guard turns his head, he takes a Sims round, you know, or, or whatever. Right. And uh, it always sucks being the rear guard, man. <laughs> always sucks being the rear guard. Uh, so lastly, uh, we covered the perception of the environment is increased through regulation of the stress response. And that's the action competency that we talked about. So just give us a quick summary on that. And uh, really what you're talking about is stacking the deck in your favor. So when this event comes your way, whether it's just a one-on-one -on -one event or you're running a small team or you're running a huge operation, it's, it's the same issue. What, what are the things we can do related to wellness and action competencies to stack the deck so that you can use as much of your brain power as possible to focus on the things that are important rather than uh, basic things that shouldn't take as much energy. Is that a good... It, it is. And, and what I tell people is, is to go out and, and be diligent in finding answers to something that you have not experienced. So depending on where you work, you might not get a call for, for um, you know, a pursuit for a while. And you're going to want to know what it's like to do it. Talk to people. Listen to people's radio traffic. Try to put yourself in the situation as much as you can. Uh, to, to increase your exposure to something, ask questions, be curious about it. The best thing is to do it. And action competency comes through doing it, actually doing the job. That's how we learn things. Um, and so that's going to help stack the deck in your favor by giving you that confidence, that self-perceived ability to act in pretty much any circumstance. Cause you're, you know, we train for almost everything. There's some stuff out there we haven't trained for that you, you just, you never know. But, um, for the most part, our training covers most of what we deal with. There's a little few nuances every once in a while, but um, it's good to talk to people that have gone through that one weird thing that maybe happens once in a lifetime and, and ask them, how did that happen? You know, what went down? What were you thinking? Where, where did you go to ask for help, if any, or did you just come up with this solution? And talk to people that have been successful in it. As far as wellness goes, again, the, the, the short answer is garbage in, garbage out. If you eat like crap, your brain isn't going to function optimally. Um, if you're not sleeping, if you don't have good sleep hygiene, same thing. The one thing that I tell people to do is to hit the pause button and breathe. Take a breath. And there's a, there's a ton of science behind that um, on how that actually slows down your heart rate, gets your prefrontal cortex back. You start thinking again. Just tell people, stop, breathe. Think about it, then go in. That's with the luxury of time. We don't always have that. But while you're en route to a call, you can breathe. Yeah, a couple breaths, slow the heart rate back down. You start yeah. thinking clearly. I think my funniest story about breathing is, is on the EVOC course when uh, we called it the rabbit. You had to go chase the instructor. And the worst thing ever was if the, if the guy lapped you and ended up behind you. That was like the worst thing ever. And I remember, and all you're really doing is you're sitting in a chair and you're steering, you're manipulating the pedals. So it's not a physical thing you're doing. You're not running. But at the end of it, 
I was breathing like, I was like, <gasps> I was like oh my God, I feel like I just, you know, yeah. like, dude, you, you were holding your breath the whole time. Gripping the wheel. Gripping the wheel. Yeah. Yeah. And so they like, I want you to do it again, but I want you to breathe. Focus on your breath. Make sure that your chest is moving, you know, and then we did it again and I'm, you know, I'm hitting turns, I'm hitting the apex and it was just great. And we can apply that same concept to any critical incident we go to. And cops and deputies are horrible, shallow breathers, right? We yeah. breathe shallowly because we have a vest on. We have all this gear on. We're not used to deep, deep breathing. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And just especially if you measure it, you can measure it. Put a little heart rate monitor on. You can watch just two or three, you know, combat breaths or whatever yeah. you call them. Battle breath, combat breath. Yeah. I have a, I, I measure my heart rate variability. It's, it's uh, a metric you can use to determine your body's ability to handle stress. And it's the distance between heartbeats. It's not, it's not a heartbeat, like a heart rate. It's every time the heart beats, there's a small variance between beats. So if you have a, a large variance between beats, that's good. That means your body can respond better to the sympathetic and parasympathetic and get that balance back quicker. Low HRV means that you're very stiff, rigid, and you don't adjust well to stress. And so that's something that you can actually do through breath work. It's, it's a measurable thing. You can measure it if you have an Apple Watch. There's a couple other devices. I, I wear this ring right here. Looks like a wedding ring. I, I, every day I go and every morning it tells me my HRV, you know, how well I slept. And it's something that, that I'm kind of a nerd about tracking numbers. So it's, there's a lot of science behind that thing, man. You can really control a lot of stuff just by doing that. I didn't know that's what Kenny meant when he said I took his breath away. I totally misunderstood that. Well, well that's still not what I meant. But. All right. Uh, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for giving us that. I, I really tried to have some self-control because there's so many things we could spin off about, you know, and talk about uh, how the brain works, the training, the physical things that impact your ability to make decisions. Like, I know you could have spun off a whole bunch of different directions. So uh, I love talking about this because we're doing okay at it, but there's so much science that we can apply to really set ourselves and our people up for success that is out there. We just haven't taken that theory and the academics that do the work and really applied it to make us better. And, and we're doing it. I'm not saying we're not, but there's so much we could really do. So I appreciate your time. Um, I think there's a lot of valuable things in here. Hopefully it gave you yeah. uh, some things to think about while you're listening. And uh, last thing, if people want to learn more, what would you suggest they do? Where, where can they go and learn more? Well, if you want to learn more about training, I'd get on the post website and I'd become uh, at least, uh, if, you're, if you're a trainer of any sort, at least go through AICC. And that's going to give you the basic adult learning theories. You're going to become a better FTO because you're going to know how people learn. That's that's at a minimum. And there's so many different classes that you can take from there. And the good thing is it's all reimbursable. The whole program's free. It's, it's nothing to your agency. It's just your time away. Yeah. And once you figure that out, you can actually see it in people. And you're like, I'm not even communicating in the language that works for you. I need to change, right? Absolutely. I need to change. I can say the same thing, but say it, you know, let you manipulate it with your hands and they understand it. Exactly right? it. Kenny's a Marine. He, if you give him crayons, he immediately <laughs> understands what we're talking about. Uh, I love the Marines, Kenny. I'm sorry. No, Speaking his made, language. You made plenty of Marine jokes this week. All right, I did. I'm trying. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catotraining.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catotraining.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice. 